there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Today is Saturday, April 17th, 2021. On this day in 1999, 22-year-old David Copeland set off a nail bomb injuring 48 people in South London's Brixton neighborhood. His goal was to kill members of the area's culturally diverse community. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today, we're covering the vile nail bomb attack carried out by 22-year-old neo-Nazi David Copeland. Let's go back to London, England on April 17, 1999, just after 3 p.m. David Copeland held his breath as he surveyed his masterpiece. The device was almost ready. It wasn't much to look at, really, just a plastic pipe filled with flash powder and sealed with glue. There was a clock, of course, and a detonator. As he programmed the timer, he considered his heroes, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein, and serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. He remembered downloading his first bomb-making manual from the internet almost two years earlier. It was from the terrorist's handbook, but it was too complicated. It wasn't until he discovered How to Make Bombs Part 2 in 1998 that everything came into focus. Now, a year later, Copeland finally got to place the bomb in its box. He poured in approximately 1,500 carpentry nails and added some shrapnel. He'd tested prototypes in Rushmore Common Park, and each one passed muster. This bomb was strong enough to smash windows and send six-inch nails hurling into people's chests, faces, and skulls. Proud of his work, Copeland sealed the box and duct-taped it to the inside of his duffel bag. Without fanfare, he left his studio, hopped on his bike, and rode to Farnborough Station. From there, Copeland took the train to Clapham Junction. By the time he arrived, it was nearly 4 p.m. He hailed a taxi. The cabbie tried to make small talk, but Copeland sat silently until they reached Brixton. When he slung the strap of the bag over his shoulder, it dug into his skin a little. The pressure didn't bother him, though. He was focused on the job at hand. Though he'd spent years planning his attack, this was actually the first time he'd been to Brixton. He walked down High Street, surveying the area for the best spot to place the bag. He had expected to see mostly Afro-Caribbean people, but was surprised that there were white people everywhere. Still, he'd worked so hard on the bomb, he thought that since all of these people chose to live in such a multicultural part of the city, he had no problem hurting them too. 
but the timer was ticking and he had to find the right place to hide the bag. That was when he saw the perfect place to leave the device. At the corner of Brixton Road and Electric Avenue was the entrance to a pretty busy shop. A bus stop, alive with activity, stood right outside the store. He knew he could capitalize on foot traffic and ensure a higher number of casualties. Copeland glanced at his watch. It read 5 p.m. He dropped the bag and casually walked away from it, down Brixton Road. A block away, he hailed another cab and made his way back to Clapham Junction. Moments later, a street vendor noticed the duffel. Bravely, he decided to peek inside. Upon discovering the bomb, he immediately called the police. But just as law enforcement arrived at 5.25 p.m., the IED went off. Nobody died from the attack, but several people were critically injured, including a toddler. The explosion blew off some victims' faces, others lost limbs or digits. But Copeland made it home to his studio in Farnborough undetected. Though he'd gotten away free and clear, he wasn't satisfied with just injuring a few people. He needed to make a bigger impact to cause even more suffering. And so he got to work on his next mission. A week later, he would stage another bombing, this time in a mostly Bangladeshi-populated area of East London. On April 24, 1999, he placed a second bomb in Brick Lane. It was intercepted by a civilian who drove it to a closed police station before it exploded in his truck. The car blew to pieces. Nearby structures caught fire. Shrapnel and shards of flying glass struck at least six passers-by. But Copeland still wasn't satisfied. If he was to garner the fame he desired, he had to cause a bigger commotion. Again, he made a new plan. A few days later, on April 30th, 1999, he planted a third bomb. This time, he brought it into the Admiral Duncan pub in Soho, London's LGBTQIA district. Pubgoers noticed the unattended duffel bag and brought it to the pub's manager. As he examined the device, it detonated. The deafening blast blew out all the windows. On his third and final attempt, Copeland managed to kill three friends who'd gotten together to celebrate. 32-year-old John Light, 31-year-old Nick Moore, and 27-year-old Andrea Dykes lost their lives. Dykes was pregnant with her first child. Doctors amputated the limbs of four other victims. That night, the police arrested 22-year-old Copeland in his studio apartment. He admitted to the bombings on the spot and proudly pointed out his collection of Nazi flags and terrorist news articles. When the police asked why he did it, Copeland responded, Murder, mayhem, chaos, damage, to get on the news. It's a top story, really. My main intent was to spread fear, resentment, and hatred throughout this country. When police pressed him for more, he said, quote, To terrorize people, it was my destiny. I am a Nazi. 
Coming up, Copeland continues to inflict violence even behind prison walls. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. At 5.30 p.m. on April 15, 1999, 22-year-old Nazi David Copeland kicked off a two-week bombing rampage. He built three bombs in his tiny apartment and lit the fuses in different London neighborhoods, killing three, including a young pregnant woman, and injuring 139 others. Copeland was a member of both the British National Party and the National Socialist Movement, a prominent neo-Nazi group. The criminal, who'd earned the name the Soho Nail Bomber, was charged with three counts of murder. The court also cited him with three counts of causing explosions in an attempt to endanger life. Copeland told the court he was inspired to invoke violence in 1996 after the Olympic Games bombing in Atlanta. Notting Hill was holding a giant carnival at the time. Copeland wondered what it would be like to set off an explosion at the festival. He confessed that the idea became an obsession, and eventually, he felt the only way to wash the thought from his mind was to act on it. As the trial went on, Copeland said he set off the bombs mostly because he wanted to be seen to become famous. He said, if no one remembers who you were, you never existed. Further, he admitted to going into a stiff, unemotional state to carry out the attacks on gays, black people, and Asians. Police said Copeland told them he hated gays and that the previous episodes were racially motivated and very personal. Ultimately, Copeland was issued six life sentences in 2000 for the London bombings. Since then, he's been serving his term at a maximum security prison in southeast London. But even prison guards couldn't keep Copeland from causing mayhem. In October of 2015, he attacked another inmate. Apparently, the prisoner instigated a verbal dispute with Copeland. The Soho bomber retaliated by attacking him with a toothbrush he'd fashioned to carry two razor blades. 
When Copeland rushed the detainee, another convict punched him in the face. A chase ensued until the men raced into the prison's laundry facility. Luckily, a correctional officer arrived on the scene, but Copeland's target was momentarily distracted by the guard's entrance, and Copeland slashed the inmate across the face with his jerry-rigged weapon. As punishment, the warden relegated Copeland to solitary confinement for 11 months. The attack earned Copeland an additional three-year sentence on top of his existing life sentences. Copeland will be 45 in May 2021 and won't qualify for parole until he is at least 75. Hopefully, an attack like Copeland's will never be seen again. Since his bombing spree, British police have done their best to honor Prime Minister Tony Blair's 1999 speech in the wake of Copeland's violence. He said, when bombs attack the black and Asian community in Britain, they attack the whole of Britain. When the gay community is attacked and innocent people are murdered, all the good people of Britain, whatever their race, their lifestyle, their class, unite in revulsion and determination to bring the evil people to justice. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells and Alex Benedon, and fact-checking by Haley Milliken. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 